at the end of the day, we just want more happy days, less unhappy days. And that's what you want, Mark. It's what I want. When we get to the, to that point, you, you know, on your deathbed, you look back and have I, have I had more of those days and less of those days? Okay. So I then started thinking, okay, so how do I make more of those days? Okay. So what do those days contain? What are the ingredients of those days? And I, and I, when I do speaking gigs, I regularly ask people to close their eyes and imagine they're watching a movie of their life. And I, and I ask them to go to a, a day in that movie, in that life that was happy, just an averagely happy day. Pause that movie and look at it and, and, and look at that day. And I've been asking that question now for 10 years. So it must be thousands of answers I've heard. Would it shock you, Mark, to hear that there were only two ingredients in that day that make us happy? The days which we want more of in our life, our friends and purpose. Everything is else, everything else is for the birds. No one said money. No one said a nice car or housing. Hi, this week's guest is Math Potts. Math is the visionary behind Camarados, the fast-growing global social movement with a simple intention to place public living rooms in our communities and in doing so, create a welcoming, no-agenda place for folk to sit down with a cup of tea or coffee, have a chat and feel more human. With no expectations other than just being alongside each other, it's simply about the power of company and mutual aid. Prior to Camarados, as CEO of a number of charities in the UK, MAF witnessed their lack of impact by simply focusing on addressing the symptoms of social issues, such as homelessness, domestic abuse and social isolation. Realising that the only two things that people really need are friends and purpose led him to step outside of the system and bring to life his public living room idea. Now MAF and his team are helping address the causes of so many of our social issues and not just the symptoms. As a difference maker, MAF now has over 170 public living rooms across five countries and growing. Now, anyone feeling a sense of hopelessness at the state of our societies, cities, communities and our loss of social connection post the pandemic, this episode will definitely uplift you. Now, over to MAF. Welcome, MAF. Thanks very much. Great to see you. Great. Okay, well, where does this uh, podcast find you? I am sat in my son's bedroom at the top of the house where it's nice and quiet and I'm looking out over... Some beautiful trees and the town common in a little English town called the town is called Wallingford and it's just south of Oxford. And I'm watching my youngest son climb an exceptionally tall tree and I'm a little bit nervous about that. I hope he's a good climber. I hope it's not the first time he's tried to climb this tree. It isn't. He always climbs this incredibly tall one. He's a, he's a good climber. Yeah. I just hope he's not a good faller. Let's see. <laughs> All right, Math. So now that we've established what you're doing, let's start with a big question. Who are you? Who do you think you really are as a human being? <laughs> well, I think you'd have to ask the people who know and uh, have spent time with me. I think they'd probably say I was a big pain in the ass. Principally because, yeah, I don't know. I guess when you get older, and I am now the white page of 50, I think you either mellow and become resigned to the strangeness of the world and kind of just let things slide a little bit more. Or you go the other route and you the fire in your belly burns brighter and you become a bit of a nuisance. And uh, I'm afraid to say for all concerned, I've definitely gone the latter route. Uh, it's a, a refreshingly original sort of description. <laughs> well, it's, I'm, I'm trying to be truthful. I think I, if I'm to be entirely honest, I, I have a bit of an aversion to the uh, filtered, glossy self-promotion that exists in all of our worlds. And I think I, it would be helpful if I could be a little bit more magnanimous about the world. But actually, it, it, just as I get older, I'm not very good at dealing with that. And that makes it <laughs> rather difficult. I try and compensate by 
generally being fairly nice to people, but you know, it doesn't always work. You described who you are from the perspective of how others see you, but what do you think made you or who made you? Oh, well, there's a question. I come from a northern town on the border of Scotland, nearer to where you originally come from, I think. And my mother was Scottish. My father was English. I consider myself a borderer, not an Englishman. So someone on the borders. And I, I kind of had a weird mix of rich and poor. So we had a big house, but no money because my dad had been the big mill owner, but then he lost everything. My first school was in the toughest, roughest part of town. And then my second school was in the poshest, richest part of town. So I ended up kind of spending a lot of my life with both those halves, really. But who made me? I mean, my, my mother was a very quiet working class woman who'd been born on a, a train station platform. Her father was a station master in a tiny little train station. And she was unintellectual, very practical, food on the table, but was the absolute boss. And she was the mm. son around which we all revolved. My father was total extrovert, entertained half the town, employed half the town, had a nightclub, had a radio station, had a TV show, was a phenomenal jazz trumpet player. And when I was age 11, taught me boogie-woogie in the blues. And he was my best friend and my hero. And yeah, he, so those are the people who made me. That's quite incredible. What a, what a story. And, and first of all, <laughs> siblings or just you? Yeah, so I'm the baby. I was an accident. So I have two older brothers and a sister, but then they, they were the unit. And then six years later, my, my Catholic mother had an accident and out, out I popped. And so I spent most of my, I spent most of my teenage years as a bit like an only child because they all moved on, of course, and got on with their lives. Wonderful people, all of them. But then uh, mm. it was mum, dad and me from age 11 to 18. Aside from that incredibly colorful description of your father, and very simple description of your mother. What values did they instill in you? Gosh, wow, what a question. Well, it's interesting because my dad wanted to make a difference. He wanted to make a mark. He wanted to, he was ambitious for that. But my mother was very much a, a, a private person. Don't shout about your achievements. So after she passed away, we discovered she'd been helping most of the people in our parish, as it were in one way or another. And we, and we never knew because she had a very private faith and she didn't talk about her good works. And so she was very, the other end of the scale of my dad, whereas my dad was on stage, you know, entertaining everyone and making everyone feel wonderful. I mean, I, if I go back to my hometown, I'll be stopped two or three times by people saying, are you Mick Potts' son? And so he's, he was a sort of man of the town, you know, and he was a gregarious, very loving, big hearted guy. So I, I think kind of probably, yeah, I think, I suppose, it, I don't know. I, I, I've never actually sat down and thought, what values did my parents give me? That's an interesting one. It's interesting that you you talk about him being a man of service because that's very much the life you've pre predominantly led. And especially now with what you're doing. Yeah, I suppose so. I mean, when dad used to talk about owning a mill, I mean, he had the classic industrial revolution, seven floors, Red mm -hmm. brick, huge chimney. If you imagine a, you know, a factory in the industrial revolution, that was my dad's. It was enormous yeah. and it was a spinning mill made, it was yeah. textiles, made wool. Uh, but when he talked about it, he used to talk about the people and he would, he would start every morning by walking around the factory talking to people on all seven floors. Mm -hmm. That was his start of his day. And he would, he would know if they just had a baby, he'd know how they were doing. So it was sort of, yeah, service to his workers, if you like. And that uh -huh. was, 
I think he took his responsibility very seriously. So I, yeah, I, I'd like to think that worked off on me. I think mm-hmm. so. Yeah. Mm. Very interesting that in a way that what you're doing now with bringing people together in your own unique way, there's a parallel there between what your father did. Gosh. Yeah. I, I honestly haven't thought about us having similar paths because he, he worked in industry and he played jazz. And that were, those were the two defining characteristics of my, of my dad. And of course I work in a, in, in the, I guess the charity world and uh, social justice and, and that sector is very, very different from him. So I, I hadn't really thought we had things mm-hmm. in common in that respect. I knew we had music in common because jazz mm-hmm. is a big part of my life, but yeah, interesting. Mm. Uh, on the therapy couch with Mark. Uh-huh. <laughs> yeah. There you go. Early morning therapy session or, or late afternoon for you. Yeah. You mentioned the sort of the, the jazz because when I first spoke to you and was first connected by, we have to give a shout out to Simon, Simon Boyle and the fantastic Noah and the Loners, his son's band. When he, he was here in Austin, he mentioned how you guys connected on a cruise ship with you playing piano. And I've decided, okay, this is going to be an interesting story. So I never expected the arc of your story to go from playing cruise ships to solving deeply human social problems by building genuine community and purpose in people's lives. So presumably your father was the, the teacher of the piano and inspired you to develop your love of jazz. Oh, very much so. Yeah. Like I say, I, I, I learned classically but when you got to age 11 in our house you had to learn pine tops boogie by pine tops johnson and and then you had to learn the blue scale and and that was it i was hooked and then i i got to learn about thelonious monk and louis armstrong and my hero oscar peterson my dad brought oscar peterson to carlisle in 1969 which is wow. unbelievable and this oh, if only there'd been cell phones of... back then <laughs> yeah you know i mean what an amazing thing he basically looked at the map and he realized that Oscar Peterson was playing the Royal Albert Hall in London. And then he was playing the Usher Hall in Edinburgh. And he thought, well, to get there, he's got to pass through Carlisle. So, so he phoned Oscar Peterson's manager and said, could he stop off for one night? And Oscar did. Um, and that became a sort of famous family story. And Oscar's my, he's the most important person in my life outside my family. If I ever get into trouble, it's like smash glass in case of emergency and listen to Oscar Peterson. So he's my, uh, he's my go-to. And, and that's been a massive part. I mean, music has been my, my heroine for my whole life. Yeah. Wow. I mean, I wonder if there's any articles written about that. I mean, what a, what a fantastic film that would make a little, I can imagine it being a sort of a, a channel Four, a BBC film the, the day that, Oscar uh, Peterson turned off at a mill town in, 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 in England. It's funny. You should say that my, my brother did for a little while start developing it as a script. Uh, I think he got as far as taking it to Cannes once, but it never went anywhere. But yeah, it would, it would be remarkable because you know, all, literally all these fellas with flat caps playing darts and there's Oscar Peterson and his trio. Yeah, it was very strange, but wonderful, wonderful thing. Yeah, wow. It's the kind of thing my dad did. He he thought big. Do you know what I mean? Mm. You know, he did lots of things like that, to be honest. Yeah. Wow. So you actually, you were in, you watched Peterson play in Carolina. Oh, no, very, very sadly, he came a couple of years before I was born, but it was a famous family story. And so... You know, I, I kind of, when I got older, I just wanted to be Oscar Peterson and, and still do and still uh-huh. fail to be. But, uh, but my dad, I mean, he, he also brought over Teddy Wilson, who was Billy Holiday's piano player and Benny Goodman's piano player. And he took Teddy around, around the country and, I mean, he did all sorts of phenomenal things. He's the guy you should have on the podcast, not me. <laughs> Trust me. 
what were your early ambitions back then? Because I can't imagine it was, well, was doing it doing what you're doing. No, no, this never occurred to me until I think I was about thirty or beyond. Yeah, no, in my early days, I my my dad loved music so much, so I I, I remember feeling a real bit of disappointment at the fact that I hadn't like Mozart with my first opera by the age I was six or whatever, you know. So I spent a lot of my youth failing to be Mozart. And then I got interested in the world and I, in my, in my teens at school, I was a, a, a debater. So I used to debate things and I wanted to get into politics. And then when I went to university, the university I went to had a very prominent debating society. And I went there and actually a lot of the people who I was there with are now in the British government. But then I discovered the kind of people who were into politics and that overnight decided I didn't want to do that anymore and got into music. I spent most of my 20s wanting to be a filmmaker, Mark. I had a little production company and I used to make films for no money. And then I sort of hit a bit of a golden goose and made these kind of commercials for a while. But no, I didn't get into the work I'm doing now until I lost everything, including my head, my brain. And that's when um, everything changed. Yeah. Well, that's probably a good point to jump ahead slightly. It's often said that life happens for you, not to you. And you've described seven days that changed your world. Presumably that's what you're referring to. Could you describe those days and events? Okay. Yeah. So your previous guest who put me forward in the impossible network, Simon Boyle, the great Simon Boyle, the inspirational mm -hmm. Simon Boyle, he, he was respond. He was the guy I met on the cruise ship. He was the head chef and I was the cocktail piano player in a white dinner jacket with a vodka martini on the piano playing, uh, girl from Ipanema. Yeah, and I, 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 I used to do a lot of these cruise ship gigs and, and just one gig in particular in the Mediterranean, doing a Greece and Turkey trip. It was, yeah, it was the culmination of things. I, I had, I guess there were three things really. One was I got to the stage in my life where I was suffering from clinical depression to the point of being suicidal. And I was, I used to cut myself. So I used to tear my neck to ribbons with, with scissors and knives and things. And with my, with my depression and I was unemployed. So my, I'd lost my production company overnight. All my clients kind of abandoned me. A this bit. is, well, I'm this sure. is before the cruise ship. Yeah. So I'd, I lost my business went under. And unfortunately, because I was sa saving money to buy a place, I was living in my office. So when I lost my business and I lost my office, I became homeless for nine months. So I was sort of sleeping on floors, sleeping on trains, sleeping in the car, then had to sell the car, all that. And then I, yeah, I was single. I had managed to ruin every lovely, good relationship I had in my life. So I was, I was single. And those three things all changed in seven days. I got on board the cruise ship and I, I was worried because I was turning 30 that week. It was the week of my birthday. I, I was worried that I was at sea on my birthday because my birthday has extra poignancy for me because, um, my parents who I've already talked about, my mother died a few days before my 18th birthday. And my dad died a few days. Sorry, she died after my, three days after my 18th birthday. My dad died three days before my 21st. So I was just leaving high school. Mum died of breast cancer. I was just finishing university and doing my final exams and dad died of heart disease. So my birthday always had this kind of poignancy. I'd, I'd, I never really felt like singing happy birthday. Mm. And every year it would come around and, and, the, and the cutting would get worse and the, 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 the mental health would die bomb. So I knew I was going to be at sea. So I thought, you know what? I can't honestly tell myself I'm going <laughs> to not have an episode and jump overboard. And I, oh. I don't want to do that. For the first time in my life, I finally went to see a doctor about it because being from the North and being a 
repressed, mm. emotionally repressed man. I always poo-pooed the idea of anything like therapy or drugs. Anyway, I went to see a doctor and he put me on some antidepressants for the first time. So I, in that seven-day period, I started taking drugs for my depression. So that was the first. The second mm. first was I got a phone call from a charity, a homeless charity called Crisis. And I'd always volunteered for them every Christmas because after my parents died, I, I spent Christmas in volunteering in homeless shelters because I, I didn't have parents to be with. And my siblings all had kids and I didn't want to bother them. So uh, I would spend mm. Christmas in the homeless shelter. While I was on the cruise ship on that seven day period, I got a phone call from them offering me a job, a way, you know, a wage job. And I'd lost my business. So I needed the money and I was homeless. So yeah, I suddenly got a job. And then the third thing to happen was a girl came on board the ship in the second week who worked for the advertising company for the cruise liner company. And six, le- six weeks later, we were engaged and I'm still married to him. Wow. So that Comedy was uh, one week. Yeah, one, one week. To, uh, started taking the drugs from my depression, got a job, met the woman I was going to marry. One week on the high seas. Wow. What a transformative <laughs> moment. So clearly a, a massive life pivot at age 30. You left your production sort of aspirations behind and then focused completely on going down the charity path. Yeah, and, and it straightened out my mental health and this fed massively into Camarados. And, you know, a lot of people are very evangelical about things, mm-hmm. mainly because it changed their life. For me, I was given this monumental dose of responsibility and purpose. I suddenly had to find shelter for homeless people in London over Christmas every year because the other services closed. I felt they were worse off than me. And so helping them straightened my head out, which is one of the big principles of Camarado is our movement, which is if you really want to help someone, give them purpose, ask them to help you, you know, excuse me. They come out of their own problems and they look out for others. Well, I suppose that's a good point to ask you about what are you working to achieve before you shuffle off this mortal coil? Well, if you think about the story I've just told you, my my life, I, incidentally, I, I didn't, you know, the depression essentially came from when my parents died, not really seeing much point to anything. Mm-hmm. And so that story where it turned around was, gave me a point to a, a reason to stick around. And what it gave me was, you know, friends and purpose. It gave me someone in my life. It gave me Ruth, my wife, and it gave me a huge dollop of purpose, which was working for the homeless charity. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, it turned my life around because I got, I got, you know, someone to love and something to do, didn't I? And I, and, and I realized that was, was massive. And then the more I worked with people who had nothing, I realized that that's what mattered to them. That's what turned things around. So, um, in the shelters, it wasn't the housing and the, it wasn't really the shelter we were providing. It was the companionship and the company and the, and the dignity and the respect. So that's, that started to feed in very early on. I realized that there was no point doing shelters unless we provided that or helped people get that. And then, um, I, you know, I, that then took me on through. My career, I started to see that as well. I, I, I got the job from the government to rebuild hostels and centers across the whole of the country. And I realized that, I, you know, bricks and mortar, uh, and even services did, didn't turn people's lives around. But when I saw people playing football together, eating together, laughing together, then I saw things change. So I, you know, I became obsessed by just doing what worked, not what the system thought worked. It became more and more obvious to me that it was purpose and relationships, you know was the meaning of life. And and yet we thought people with these deeply broken lives would turn everything around if we just gave them an apartment. 
Mm-hmm. I mean, that just didn't happen. And it was so obvious to me that the single biggest reason for homelessness has always been relationship breakdown. Always look at the statistics. And yet we think we can fix it with a house and money. I mean, it's, it's completely absurd. So that just became more and more obvious the more I worked in the charity sector until finally I couldn't stand it anymore. And, and to be honest, the sector couldn't stand me anymore either because I was banging on about it. And so it sort of spat me out and, and then up came Camarados. I mean, homelessness has been with us. Well, certainly all through my life and, or, but I mean, obviously we, we, I'm witnessing here in Austin the in homeless encampments that happen to sit on the side of the I-35, people in tents. We know what it's like in San Francisco and cities like Los Angeles and London is particularly bad. But, you know, I remember when I lived in London, you know, even in sort of the late 90s, there was a pretty significantly damaging sort of homeless problem. And, you know, you talked about with the crisis. There's obviously there was a, another famous charity called Shelter, They've been around long enough, and there's plenty of social psychologists and researchers out there understanding the causes of why people fall out of the mainstream society. Surely the insights that you had from experience must have been well known within the the sector, either from a academic standpoint or from just a practical standpoint. As you say, when you see people coming together in a community centre – in a shelter, that's where connect, when connection happens, things change. Why hasn't sort of either public policy or even the the investment and the development budgets from charities been directed differently to addressing the fundamental issue rather than the symptom? The problem is when people organize, they systemize and they dehumanize. And that's the problem. We, when we organize ourselves to do something, unfortunately, human beings, we're, we're messed up and we are, we, we can't help ourselves. And, and the Victorians didn't help and the Calvinists didn't help. And, you know, basically this notion of charity, it has to be top down. It has to be hierarchical. I have to have the answer and I have to find a solution and I have to fix you and you have, you have to be fixed. You have to be grateful. Uh, you have to supplicate yourself and you have to do as we say. And, uh, that's how charity works. There's a parent and there's a child. There's the, uh, the savior and the feckless. And we are so unbelievably hardwired into that, that we, we, we go that, that, that's how, how the process runs. And, and we like tangible, hard outcomes. We like things we can hit. We like, you know, a bricks and mortar. We like a house. We like a, things we can see, a job. We don't like to realize that the answer is to sit down and spend time with someone and listen to them and find out that they're human and they've got angles and, complexities and that they haven't got time for that complexity is is costs money humanity costs time and money so we can't be human so we'd rather treat people like data or units housing units and i'm afraid that is utterly utterly ingrained into every form of process or system and charity i'm sorry to say that i do believe there are wonderful charities out there but they're mostly wonderful because of workers who go beyond their job description mm-hmm. the expression you go above and beyond is a funny expression because you shouldn't go above and beyond. It should be just what you do. It's just that being human and friendly and listening to people and respectful is now going above and beyond because all the system does is the basic, which is not always human. Um, the, the people in Austin who are on your streets are not there because of a lack of housing or resources. 
Absolutely. I'm sure it started with poverty. Maybe it started in, with other things too, but what came along with it was the, the, the rather unhelpful things known as shame, stigma, guilt, self-loathing, and the ensuing mental health problems which spiral out of that. The relationships that break down because of it, the violence and abuse that can come with that. And that's what's going on with people out there. You know, they, they don't, there's not lots of people sitting happily singing along about how happy it is to be homeless. I, you know, I don't believe in that stereotype of the, of the person who's chosen the man on the road life. I think behind it, there's someone who feels that society's rejected them and doesn't listen, doesn't give a damn. Mm-hmm. And I, I don't blame them. I did some consulting work back in 2019 with a, a global organization called Epic, and they've supported mm-hmm. numerous charities around the world, including quite a few in London, like the DePaul Trust and street, a street football one for kids to really build community. And, you know, all these charities have great theories of change about the transformation that they want to create. And a lot of them obviously are given unrestricted grants to focus on the areas they know where the, the greatest impact can be made. But I'm struggling to understand why, if, if there are things like unrestricted grants and there are people realize that what they do above and beyond is where real impact happens. Why don't strategies change? Well, I'd love you to direct me towards these unrestricted grants. That would be great. We could start with that. A lot of it does actually come from the commissioner and the, and the funder who, who demand certain mm-hmm. key performance indicators and outcomes and all these things, which, which drives a certain change they want to see. So I think you'll find most funders want to see people into a job or into a house because then they can measure that. They can see it, you see. Uh-huh. A funder, a funder thinks it's terribly flaky and terribly wishy-washy and left-wing and liberal to talk about someone's self-esteem improving. They can't see that, you see. So that makes it harder to fund. And then, mm-hmm. uh, charity, charities, listen, there are many wonderful charities in the world, but unfortunately there is a problem with the charity model, which is mm-hmm. that it employs decent people who rise up the ladder. And like me, I became a, a chief exec and it's very easy to convince yourself as a decent person working in a charity that your job is to keep the salary for your workers coming in, keep uh-huh. food on their table. And I, when I was a CEO, I had 12 million salary bill. So you think it becomes an obsession to find the 12 million. So therefore you, you do what you need to do to get the funding. You, you, you gather those hard outcomes and you do all of that. Uh, but of course it isn't actually your mission to pay the salary bill and keep your staff employed because your mission isn't preservation of your charity. Your mission mm. is the mission of the charity and the beneficiaries. Mm. And as we've seen in many high profile cases, a lot of charities put their preservation before mission. So we, we, we hide our bad practice and we go for contracts we shouldn't be going for. And we compete with people who are better than us because we want more slice of the cake because we need to preserve ourselves. And it really should be about mission. How many charities do you know, Mark, start with the desire to put themselves out of business? Not many. I feel like I'm unduly slamming the charity world. There are some really, really wonderful charities but unfortunately the model is is problematic the whole the whole way we do good is problematic and it's mainly because when humans organize they mess it all up have you um ever read the book by anand giardardis winners take all no i haven't you need to read that he is the biggest critic of the global philanthropy system where he really derided the whole concept of doing well by doing good and how philanthropists and their dollars have shaped public policy and what he sees as a glaring hypocrisy among the affluent elites. And while obviously very well-meaning, 
and claiming to want to improve social inequities, they don't actually challenge the structures that preserve the inequality and not wanting to jeopardize their own privileged positions. So that seems to very much resonate with what you're saying is at the fundamental heart of the, the systemic problem with philanthropy. Absolutely right. Yeah. I must, I must give it a read. Yeah. Sounds like he was an ABBA fan as well. Winner takes it all. Is that oh, of ABBA course. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Wow. That's going back in time uh, a bit. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I feel a bit miserable sometimes giving charities a kicking because of course there's lots of very, very lovely people working there, but that's why they never get a kicking. Yeah. Because no one, no one wants to take on really lovely people. So there were, you know, in London, there are 59 soup runs, soup kitchens. 59 mm. in a sort of three or four square mile radius of Westminster. You know, these people didn't need soup to stay on the streets. They, they, they needed people to actually do something a bit more useful and constructive, but it, it was actually really more about people wanting to feel good about themselves and give out soup than it was about the people who were helping. I know that's incredibly upsetting to hear, but I, I find that is what I found. And I can give a, I can give an example of that. Westminster started to, outlaw two things. They were outlawing people's right to sleep on the streets and they outlawed people's rights to give out soup. And the only one that sparked protest Whoa. was the right, was the what was the right to give out soup. Nobody uh-huh. was campaigning against the criminalizing of sleeping on the streets. They were criminalizing they were they hated the fact that they couldn't give out soup anymore. I mean that tells you everything you need to know. So for me, I just think charity needs to focus <laughs> on on what it's there to do, not on itself. Uh-huh. I think we are at a very much as of an inflection point in society where all systems are being rethought. Mm. There's a great book that was, um, and is a, hopefully an upcoming guest, a guy called John Alexander, another ex-ad guy that's reinvented himself called Citizen. I don't know if you've encountered that book. I've got it beside my bed and yeah, I, I've, I've met John. He's a lovely fella. Oh, you have, right. Okay. And it's just amazing how, you know, we were caught up with this story of consumer. And that, as you say, when you think about charities, it's about, well, let's get people back consuming again. And reality is what we need to do is create a new story. And he calls it the citizen story. And it's very much embedded in that is at the core of what is, it's about community and looking after each other and having purpose with your community. So that's probably a good point for you to explain to us the, I think you explained the two core things people need is friendship and purpose. So maybe you could then just explain the origins of Camarados and what started you on that track. Well, not only did I sort of see it with my own eyes, and I always felt like an outsider in the charity world because I'd never set out to work in it and I'd always worked outside of it. So I sort of came in and immediately felt the jolt of how people were treating people. And I saw what worked and what didn't. And I realized very quickly that soup and blankets and housing didn't. And so it, it became obvious to me, but then I, I then became um, slightly obsessed by my own failure. I spent 20 years thinking that the more important I got, the more change I could make. So I, I just, you know, mm. became head of this, chief exec of that. I was a government advisor for a while. I, I had hundreds of millions of pounds in a program I was giving out, all that kind of thing. And I wasn't making a difference. So I started to try and really simplify it and think, okay, Perhaps my job here is to increase the frequency of happy days in someone's life, right? Because the complexity mm-hmm. and sort of horrific amount of awfulness in some people's lives, it became so absurd to think I was ever going to fix that. 
how could you? So I started to think, look, at the end of the day, we just want more happy days, less unhappy days. And that's what you want, Mark. It's what I want. When we get to the, to that point, you were talking about by shoveling off your mortal coil, you, you know, on your deathbed, you look back and have I, have I had more of those days and less of those days? Okay. So I then started thinking, okay, so how do I make more of those days? Okay. So what do those days contain? What are the ingredients of those days? And I, and I, when I do speaking gigs, I regularly ask people to close their eyes and imagine they're watching a movie of their life. And I, and I ask them to go to a, a, a day in that movie, in that life that was happy, just an averagely happy day. Pause that movie and look at it and, and, and look at that day. And I've been asking that question now for 10 years, rooms full of hundreds of people. So it must be thousands of answers I've heard. Would it shock you, Mark, to hear that there were only two ingredients in that day? Okay. 80% of people, probably nearer 90% of people were with other people on the, uh, and people who mattered in some way to them. They weren't, they were very rarely alone. 10% to maybe 20%, but nearer 10% were doing something that gave them a huge thrill, a, a sense of purpose. You know, I climbed that mountain. I passed the driving test. I, you know, whatever, something that made them happy. So really the only two ingredients in the days that make us happy, the days which we want more of in our life, our friends and purpose. Everything is else, everything else is for the birds. No one said money. No one said a nice car or housing. You know, I'm sorry. It was something that gave them a sense of purpose, a, a reason to be here and other people. And other, other people was by far and away the biggest and resounding success. In my 20 years working with people with broken lives, and, and we've talked a lot about homelessness, but I was, re- I was dealing with drug addicts. I used to run rehabs. I had domestic violence refugees. I worked in communities that were very rough. I worked with high-risk offenders, all of that. Did I ever, ever ask them if they had anybody in their life, anyone important who mattered to them, any friends? No. Did I ever ask them if I connected them with their real purpose? No. I'd find them a small one-bedroom flat and I would get their benefits sorted. Basically, I get, I get, I get them a little bit of money, right? And that, that was it. Maybe a, a qualification or something. I might get them a shelf stacking job at a supermarket, you know? And, and, and that was job done. I got a big tick. Funders loved it. Government loved it. I loved it. Everyone was happy. I've done my job. But guess what? I'd see them again within three months. I wonder why that was then. Well, that's because I'd done absolutely nothing to attack what made a happy day. Nothing. No, no friends and no purpose, right? But there was a wonderful homeless charity. I think there still exists, Mayday. And they, they worked with people on what mattered with them, the Mayday Trust. And they found this guy living by the river in Oxford in a tent. And he'd completely given up his services because he'd seen that they never did anything that remotely mattered to him. They discovered that he loved flying model airplanes. Earlier in his life, he used to stand on hillsides and fly those model planes. Hmm. So they got him involved with the local model plane flying society. And he loved it. And he was really, really happy. He was having great days. He was going up on the, uh, just outside Oxford on this hill and he would fly these planes in the sky, loving it. He, he was a regular. So they asked him to become secretary of the club, but to become secretary of the club, he had to have an address. So that, and that was then a conversation about, listen, you need an address to be secretary of the club. Oh, suddenly he had an incentive to maybe think about housing. Why? Okay. Because it was linked to something that mattered to it in his life. He got friends in the club. He got housing because he needed an address. Oh, we've sorted out the main things that the system wanted, but we did it through his passion and his love. It's coming at it in a different way. Instead of thinking, let's sort the housing out and the and job and we'll boom, tick. No, what matters to you, man? Well, what matters to me is flying model planes. You know, so see them as a human, not as a unit. Mm-hmm. 
Make sense? Sorry, I feel like I'm being a, a little yeah, bit emphatic. Yeah. No, no, <laughs> no, no. It's it's good. It's it's, it's making it really clear. Good. I, I hasten to add that Camarados does not. Camarados is not a homeless organization. We work with anyone going through tough times. I, I want to say that. Yeah. Well, it's just one other thing in the question where I said, "Can you discuss your experiences of homelessness that led you to realization these factors, friends, and purpose matter?" You said death every second. 16 days. Oh, yeah, that was just a little note to myself, yeah. I mean, when, when I, I eventually got to the stage where I was, I was running the biggest homeless provider in the UK, okay, the Salvation Army's Homelessness Service, mm-hmm. thousands of staff, hundreds of projects from the top of Scotland to the bottom of England and all over Ireland as well. I ran the ones in Ireland as well. Every 16 days, I had a death. My phone would ping and it would say sudden death and it would tell me that in one of the towns, you know, someone had died and it was suicide or overdose, accidental overdose. It was hard sometimes to tell which was which. You know, it, I became a, a very nervous person, as you can imagine, when your phone pings every time someone dies in, in your mm. care, that gets gets to you. So I investigated all of these deaths, and the common denominator between every single one was isolation, la- a lack of relationships, mm-hmm. every single one. That was really obvious to me, that putting someone in a house, in a bedroom, in a flat was was nowhere near doing anything so was that the 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 contributing factor the thing that led you to walk away from that and set up camaradas well it 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 was 20 years of contributing factors mate Mm, i mean i i I tried to change it from within so i i I didn't spend 20 years ignoring this thing i was watching in every single place i went i tried to bring friends of purpose so i i re i rewrote Every strategy I went to have that in, mm-hmm. our services had to be about that. You know, we made sure that when we inspected Salvation Army hospitals, we ins- hospitals, we inspected it based on are these people getting relationship and purpose. So I tried to bring it in the system, but the system didn't like it very much and struggled with it. That's why I was a nuisance because they, they I'm not sure they really believed it. And mm-hmm. so finally I got to the point where I realized I had to do it outside of the system, really. Mm-hmm. And I mean, it's a, it's a slightly more complicated story than that, but it's simple terms. I realized that organizations struggle with what I was trying to do, whereas a movement, a social movement, going direct to people in their neighborhoods and getting them to do it themselves in their own time as humans was mm-hmm. the best way to do it. Because like I say, if, if we organize too much, we, we systemize and we can't handle the stuff I'm talking about. Is it fair to say that what you're focused on now is more preventative? Not just preventing homelessness, but preventing abuse, domestic abuse, breakdowns. No, no, uh, uh, it's all of the above. It's people at the top of the cliff and people at the bottom of the cliff. It, yes, it's preventative, but people walk in who are in the midst of massive crisis and, and, and people walk in who have no crisis and everything in between. And I think all of us need a bit of that friends and purpose in our day. And I think it can happen at any time and we all need it. Yes. Okay. Prevention. But I don't see, I, I don't see that as the right question. If you don't mind me saying, Mark, because I, I think, yeah, yeah, that, no, no. But the word prevention suggests we're dealing with a binary system. Uh-huh. We're not. Tough times is a continuum system. It's a, mm-hmm. I think the word pre- prevention suggests that the world is, lives according to the logic model, which is there's a problem. We need to issue an intervention. And we need to, oh, look, it's fixed. I don't believe uh-huh. that fits, that fits this really important thing known as life. The logic model mm-hmm. fits when you have a broken arm or when your car suddenly is broken down, but it doesn't fit life because mm-hmm. life isn't ever fixed. 
No, I mean, it makes sense that I say it because I've, I've been having been exposed to a, a global philanthropy organization where that's what you're in, essentially is ingrained in you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I get As you say, it's a system. There's a problem, there's an intervention, and we'll create a solution. Yeah, but I mean, there's lots of things that are wrong with that. What, one of them is who the hell do you think you are? <laughs> it's like, yeah. you know, like what you're the, what you're the answer. Wow. Get over yourself there, Bob. You know, these people might have an opinion on how they want to live their life. Just saying, you know, also, you know, you have good days and bad days. You, you get things go well and then things don't go well. You know, you're never fixed. The most we can do is create an environment and, and have a, a behavior and a sense of mutual respect and support. That means that when you fall, you don't fall too far. That's about the most we can do. You know, Marvin Gaye said three sure things in life, taxes, death, and trouble. We're always going to have trouble. You're never fixed. But the whole charity model and the whole services model completely works on you being fixed and off their books. And I'm sorry, but that doesn't fit. It's funny. I interviewed Melanie van der der Velde, and she runs an organization in Glasgow. She's Dutch (laughs) with a, a nice Glaswegian twang. And she runs an organization called Big Tree Global. And she was talked to, and she's really looking at taking the SDGs and putting them into four key areas to address people, planet, fair pay, and, e- and equal opportunities. I think the four are, I'm right. And she worked in Kibera in Kenya to, with lots of charities there and said, we think that by giving, buying one, give one free pair of shoes to give some kids shoes in Africa is going to solve a problem. Well, what happens when they grow out of those shoes? So it's what you need to do is give economic opportunity to the parents so they get a job that opens up opportunity for the child so they don't have to go shoeless. And they said, we need to rethink things. And I think it's exactly the same as as what you're doing. There's a reimagining of this. And maybe it's the breaking down of this binary system that's existed in the past. And maybe that's what, when we're putting it in the context of what John Alexander talks about, you know, it's, we're, we're, we're consumers. We can solve the problem somehow and we can get people back into the consumer society that have got outside of that society. And the reality is we need to, it's a reimagining of the, the system that's led to this social breakdown. And the well, other, and and I got- I'm seeing through a lot of the interviews I'm doing with someone like Lenore Anderson looking at criminal justice reform in the US and David Risley as well. You know, it's, we have a, Justice system predicated on punishment and hard on crime. But the reality is you need to look at what's led to that. And there's a lot of people out there have done really bad things that were victims themselves. And if we don't under- address the underlying social issues that lead them to that situation, we're not going to solve our problems. And as you say, there's no, always going to be trouble. Yeah. But, but I think it's, it's, I mean, it's also seeing them as humans and as, equals so and it also you know that that is not just a, a rose-tinted soft message it's actually quite a hard message i mean I, I remember meeting a someone in new york who said math new yorkers are natural camarados you know we'll help a brother out but we won't take no shit neither and that's that's it in camarados which is if i disagree with you i'm gonna tell you mm. and if i can't help you I'm, I'm gonna tell you but if i can great you know and we're on the level here you have to take personal responsibility. People have done bad things and they're victims. Yes, but I'm going to tell them that they've done a bad thing. And there's going to be a, probably a punishment. You know, you, you, you can't stick around, but I'll see you tomorrow. There's always an open door. I'll always treat you with respect, but I'll also tell you when you're, you're causing harm here. 
So it's mutual aid is less romantic than the beautiful altruism and generosity of Mother Teresa. But mutual aid is far more successful because it allows people to be enabled to take part and be involved and, and, and take some responsibility, but also be helped as well. And it, it, it's, it's much better than no, all of you over there just be the helpless and all of you over there be the gifted and helped and the saviors. That's, mm. that's not a model for society I can really get behind. You know, Maslow, Maslow's hierarchy of needs used mm-hmm. to really piss me off for years working in the East End in London. I used to think this is bullshit. You know, this whole idea that you've got to get your food, shelter and warmth sorted as your primary need. Well, people never held onto their food, shelter and warmth if they didn't have the stuff at the other end of the pyramid, which was uh-huh. relationships, self-actualization, all that. Anyway, much to my joy, I discovered that Maslow came out 20 years later in the 60s and said, actually, that's not what I wanted to say. What I wanted to say is the answer is community. Mm-hmm because he'd spent some time with the Blackfoot tribe and something that indigenous peoples know far better than uh, white male civilization is that it's about the units of community. It's about looking out for each other around the campfire in, you know, in, in the village, as it were, um, and looking out for each other, you know, on the level. It's really interesting that you mentioned Maslow because I was, um, you know, spent a lot of time in advertising. You focus on that model and you use it to justify strategies and ideas. And I, I, increasingly, I'd started writing a blog post recently about how I thought it was fundamentally flawed and that we ne- need to think it more not as a hierarchy, but as a circle. We have a, cir- a circle of needs that, that have to be satisfied every day to keep you balanced as a balanced human being and a balanced community and a balanced society. And it's interesting that you, I didn't know that Maslow said that, so I need to go away and research that. So thank you for that. Yeah, yeah. No, not at all. I, apparently it was because there was no academic respect for indigenous peoples in academic circles. And so he would have been laughed at, so he didn't say it. Mm. Fascinating. Well, could you explain to us the structure and how Camaradas works and wh- what are public living rooms? Well, we're, we're trying to keep the organization out of it. So, so we, we basically, it's a, an open source idea, I believe is, is a, an expression you can use. So we, like my, my tiny team, we work in a shed in a garden near Oxford. And we, we, we send out boxes to people who feel like they want to set up a public living room. We have a chat with them first and a cup of tea over Zoom, probably. And then, um, we send them out a box and in the box is everything they need to get started. All they've got to do is add people and furniture. You know, find a space and off they go. If I'm to be entirely honest, though, I shouldn't really say this, but they don't really need the box. It's just a bit of theater and permission really makes them mm-hmm. feel part of it. But, but, but to be fair, in the box are, are little nudges, I guess, towards these things we call our six principles, which just to help keep the space free of all the things we've been talking about so far. Keep it human, keep it mutual. And people have been doing this in all sorts of places, all sorts of. At times, so we, we, we're not prescriptive at all. It's completely open source. You can do it in your hospital, your college, your school, your park, your prison, your wherever, library, art gallery, you name it. We've got, we've got public rooms in all of the places I've just mentioned. Some people do it once a week. Some people do it once a month. Some people do it every day. All we ask is that you, you kind of keep to the six principles and, and away you go. And yeah, it's a, there's 170 worldwide. There'll probably be 200 by summer. It's really growing fast. And uh, we're in five countries. What are the six principles? So they're just things to sort of make us stop behaving in that kind of top-down fixy way. So one of them is is no fixing. It's really important mm-hmm. that this is a space with no agenda. There are no solutions here, no outcomes to measure. 
you are just come in and live and be a human alongside other humans. And of course, what happens is people are liberated by that because they're so used to being sold something or, or fixed mm-hmm. that when they go somewhere where there's no expectation from that, it frees up wonderful conversations to happen where guess what? Lots of solutions do come out and lots of ideas do come out, but, but it, but that's never the intention. We, we just talk. I mean, I'm a purist. I believe that spending an hour talking about your favorite biscuit, I suppose for an American audience, your favorite cookie would be an hour well spent and it's human and you connect. So no pixing is a big one. Linked to that is probably our most popular principle, which is it's okay to be a bit rubbish sometimes. I don't know if that translates to an American audience, but it's okay to mess up. It's okay to make mistakes. Mm-hmm. It's okay not to be perfect. And in the, in this space, you do not have to be a success. People absolutely love that one. The world's mm-hmm. most popular public room is, um, the busiest is, uh, in a university in, in England, in a place called Bristol and 700 students use it every day. And when I asked the student, why'd you come in here? She said, well, it's, it's like, I don't have to excel in here, which I think tells you everything you need to know about the pressure on kids these days. So yeah, so it's okay to be rubbish. Mixing with people who are not like you, that's a big one. As a species, we rarely mix with people who are not like us. So in public rooms, we openly promote bringing people who are not like you in there. And linked to that is the principle, it's okay to disagree respectfully. That's really important. Sounds really obvious. It's the principle people struggle with most. If somebody comes in and they voted differently for you, it's a little harder to sit down and have a cup of tea with them, but that's what we want you to do. You know, the state of public discourse is such these days that to disagree with someone is to not like them and you can't be friends with them. Mm -hmm. And I I don't know when that happened, but it's not a good thing. Disagree respectfully is a big one. And then the last two principles, one's very obvious, one's not. The obvious one is to be silly is to be human. So we're we're big fans of being silly and being fun. Mm -hmm. I think humor erodes a lot of those strange behaviors that people do. And and then the, the last one, which is less easy to grasp is, is the one I mentioned before, which changed my life, which is if you see someone struggling, don't help them, ask them to help you. And when you say six words to people, can you do me a favor? You know, in, in that sentence, you are conveying so many massive things. You're saying to someone that you trust them. You're saying that they have value. You're saying that they belong. And you're saying that you don't have all the answers. And you're saying that all by simply asking them to d- help you with something, give you some advice. You know, what do you think of this? I'm really worried about this. What do you think of that? Just think of something that they could maybe help you with, you know, just in, in a thinking kind of way, you know, what's your advice mm-hmm. on this? What you'll, what you'll find is someone comes out of their hole. It rewires their thought process. They start thinking about you. They start thinking about that problem. They feel better about themselves because they're useful and they're there for you. They've got your back. What a wonderful thing. So those are the six principles. Mm-hmm. When you impart these principles to people setting up, do they then have to then share these principles with everyone that turns up at the public living rooms? Is that part of the the process? So we try and do it in a really loose way because the last thing we want to be is a religion because we know how that works out. So we want to just keep it very loose. It's really important just to 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 keep it light. So we we nudge them in different little ways. We have a poster and we have little kind of, I don't know if you call them coasters in America, but you know, uh, something yeah. to put your mug on. We have mugs. We have little things that with the principles on and, 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 you know, we have this badge with a C on it and what it, it starts a conversation. So people who wander into the public living room are like, what's that about? And it allows the person who said, who started it to say, ah, oh, it's this movement camaraderie. What's that? Oh, well, they have these principles, you know, 
we have a poster that says no agenda spaces in all sorts of places. And people are like, oh, no agenda. I like that. You know, sometimes you put it on a notice board outside, you know, no agenda, but you know, in little ways, but we try and do it very gently and lightly. Mm. Um, and I should say, I'm a member of the, the Y, the YMCA, the Y organization here. And there's a gym and they've got the town lake version is one I'm a member of just down the road. And they have a big outdoor area where we do spin classes and, and fit and just circuit training. And it's covered. And obviously Austin weather gets pretty hot in summertime, but most of the time it's, it's empty. So I was having a chat to one of the sort of management team there and said, do you think you could create a public living room here if we got some furniture? And she went, yeah, that's a great idea. Do it. So I might have to um, be having a little session with you at some point. That's fantastic. That's exactly what that place needs. You've just made my day. That's great mm-hmm. news. Right. I'll, I'll connect you up with my team. We'll get you what you need. I'd great. love that. Okay. Anyway, but you have not only just um, uh, growing the public living rooms around the world, you're also going mobile yourself, I believe, by traveling around the country in a van, <laughs> a man in a van with a bunch of furniture. Could you explain yeah. the, the, that side of the story and the impact it's having, what you're witnessing? Yeah, well, I, I want to get word out, and but, you know, I, not everyone is actually on social media, contrary to popular belief. And I wanted to... I, I, I wanted to meet people where they were in the street. I didn't want to be filtered through whatever they were using or whatever organizations they were with. I wanted to go direct to people, which is what I always wanted to do when I sat in my bedroom eight years ago and came up with this idea. I, I wanted mm-hmm. to kind of cut out the middleman. But also for my, <laughs> for my own mental health, I, I, th- th- that's my happy place. My happy place is sitting on a sofa talking to a stranger. So I thought, why well, I'm going to do this. Yeah, we hired a cheap van, filled it full of furniture, and I turned up to a different neighborhood every week and we put sofas on the pavement and I talk to whoever sits down next to me and I've done it in so many towns now I've kind of lost count yeah it's great so you put your furniture your sofa your chairs and people just come and sit beside you yeah I mean it looks a bit strange people don't expect indoor furniture outside they see a, a lovely sofa and a, a big wing like armchair and a, a plant mm. and a, a standard lamp or something like that and it's outside they just sit down and talk to me sometimes I don't even let on that it was me who put it there. So I'll just be reading a newspaper and someone will say, what's this? And I'll say, I don't know, uh, sometimes. And they just sit down and we, and we talk, you know? Uh-huh. Wow. Yeah, we connect. It's a- yeah, and I've, I've met so many amazing people and had incredible stories, incredible uh-huh. stories. We think about the British character. They'll see something and they'll maybe just walk past it and just go, oh, that's a bit odd. But you're actually seeing mm. people that will actually stop and engage what would be the numbers on average where you would be in a community putting the sofas and chairs out? Completely depends. I mean, I was in a, a seaside town called Scarborough the other day. Your listeners will know it from the song Scarborough Fair. Oh my God, I must have had 120 people stop over the course of six hours. I mean, so many people just sat down and joined me. But then other days it'll be, you know, ones and twos every now and again. And, and that's, you know, and absolutely some people don't like things that don't seem right. Some people just come over and go, no, no, what's mm. this? This is ridiculous. What's this? I don't understand this. You know, that's fair enough. But most people, I'll be honest, come around and go, yeah, this is what we need. You know, this is great. Every place should have something like this. That's the phrase I hear most. Mm. Every place needs something like this. And, you know, I have these little chalkboards and on it, it'll say, put your feet up because life's hard enough. 
mm-hmm. or relax, look out for each other, or it just says public living room and I let people, but people say, what is this? Mostly I say it's a public living room and they say, well, what's that? And I say, well, what do you think? <laughs> you know, and they, they, they can't, you know. Have you, have you encountered situations where people have gone, right, okay, I need a box. I'm going to do it. Yes. I mean, that's, that, that's my main, I guess that's the main reason for doing it is to get out there and get word out. And people say, wow, how can I do this? Yes, absolutely. Mm-hmm. Almost every time I've done it, I've left yeah. at least one or two people with my, my number and they get in touch and, uh-huh. and it leads to public living. Yeah, that's the absolute aim. I just want, mm-hmm. listen, Mark, this is a tiny, tiny, little, simple idea. I just want it in every single neighborhood on planet Earth. Wow. And that's it. So the intent is, it's not five countries, it's 50, 100, 150. Yeah. I mean, we've got our first one in Africa. So we've got one on the beach in Freetown in Sierra Leone. You know, we've, we've got them in, in far, the far west coast of Australia in Perth. Got a couple there, actually. You know, and we've got some across the States. And But I, I want them everywhere. So we've, we've got to get better at that. We've got to get better at getting word out. We've got to have all our materials translated into all languages. And, you know, it's, it's not easy to do that. But it's just a small, simple uh, idea of creating a no-agenda human space where people can go when they're having a rough time, where, where you're not going to have someone in your face fixing you or selling you anything. And you can just be human. So perhaps, Math, you could explain the origins of the word. Camarados is a word mentioned in a poem by the great American poet, Walt Whitman. And I've been a big fan of Walt ever since. His poems were used in the film Dead Poets Society, which was one of the reasons when I was 17 years old, I, I thought, okay, then I'll go and study English at Oxford University, which I did. It surfaced later when my, I married my wife. We had what Walt Whitman read out at my wedding. And he has a poem called Song for the Open Road. And he says that on the open road of life, more important than money, more important than food, is to have a camarado at your side on the road, on the journey. So he says, come camarado, give me your hand, let us away. And so I used to sort of refer to people as camarado. And, and then I was working with a a, a, a couple of pals who, were, who ran a design agency. And I said, help me come up with an identity for this movement. They had a very scientific way of doing that. They basically involved going to the pub or what you would call a bar, ordering some drinks. And they sat down and said, it's camarados. And I said, oh, is it? And they said, yes, you call us camarados every time you email us. Uh I said, oh, do I? And so camarados, yeah, I've got Walt Whitman to thank. Uh, That's very cool. I didn't know about that Walt Whitman poem. So yeah, I'll put that, I'll put that in the show notes. Where do you want to be by 2030? (laughs) <laughs> What's your goal? We try and keep it simple. And mm-hmm. I just want to see a public living room in every neighborhood. So that's unlikely by 2030, but I hope that by 2030, there'll be more public living rooms in more neighborhoods. I just want, I, I don't have this desire to constantly innovate. Mm-hmm. I just want this small and simple contribution to be everywhere. That's it. Mm-hmm. Nice ambition. Well, the global goals set by the UN in 2015 had some big ambitions ambitions for 2030 in terms of addressing some of the, the larger systemic global issues. Obviously, your public living rooms is sits nicely in by building community and connection and giving people purpose. I remember back in the 90s, there was a place in London called The Third Space. It was a gym that was set up in Soho, a place where people come together. And essentially what you are doing is creating third spaces. What's your view? Because I'm sure you know a lot of brands and businesses today talk about having purpose and there is a both a risk and an opportunity of brands co-opting what you're doing or coming to support you in your mission what's your view on 
their role in helping you scale what you want to do? I know you're saying you want to keep it simple, but you do want to see it as, in as many countries mm. as possible. How do you balance that? I have nothing against brands and commerce at all. Quite the opposite. I find it much more straightforward than charity, as I think we've established. <laughs> so I, I have no problem with, with brands, but I do think it's the issue we would hit is that these are no agenda spaces. So we, we, I can't allow any agenda in. And, and I, I got to tell you that we recently walked away from a very large amount of money because they wanted us to refer people to mental health services. There can't be an agenda. They, people can't think they're going to come in and something's going to happen to them. Either they're going to be sold something or they're going to be fixed. So we have to keep the space clean. It's otherwise the, the model isn't the model anymore. So, um, we have to be pretty pure about that. Public living room and camera models are both trademarked. So if a brand wants to come and have a go, I'll sue their ass. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Basically, I was speaking to an upcoming guest in the Bronx neighborhood of New York, a guy called Omar Freya. And he is very much aligned with what you're doing, but he's building cooperatives, community cooperatives, particularly around the black and Latin communities to help them build economic opportunity and community together. And so once, once this is alive, I'm going to connect you with them because I think it would be really interesting to see that conversation of you two coming together. Um, There's a cooperative in, in London that runs public living rooms every day. Really wonderful cooperative. They're called Cooperation Town in London. Ah. You should check them out. They're brilliant. Yeah. Yeah. It, it's interesting. I, I think there is, I mean, it goes along. We talked about John Alexander and his citizens book earlier and what he's doing. He's got a whole citizen sort of now led organization. But I think we are going to see the emergence of more community led cooperatives where what you're doing will be at the, at the very center of it. So I think it's, it's really exciting. We want to, make this podcast trigger some form of action because there's enough talk in the world. And the great thing about what you're doing is you're taking action. And as you've said, there's a lot of great people in philanthropy, but a lot of it is just, is is not really creating real sort of change. Um, What actions can people or business leaders take that can drive change and impact around the world based on what you've done? What would your recommendations be to people? Oh my goodness. Well, I mean, of course, you're going to expect me to say, get in touch with us and we'll send you a box and you do of, a public living room. Of course, uh, yeah. In your office, mm-hmm. in your office, your neighborhood, wherever, we'd, we'd love that. I always wanted to build a cross-subsidy model, mm-hmm. but to, to give our tiny little team over to sustainability, but I'm not sure if that'll work. And what could they do? I mean, I think it's about being more human. So we, we have a slogan, be more human and on our T-shirt. I think that people need to think about how inhuman their culture can be. And, you know, it just takes 20 seconds just to stop and think, hold a minute. Is this actually a human system I'm creating? Because, you know, it's, it's that thing about organizing out the human, which is, is what we often do. So, you know, does your organization demand that people do what you want them to do? Or are you meeting them where they are? You know, so mm-hmm. there's a lot of places that say, sorry, we're only open between 8.30 and 2.30. But the people they serve are only really around in the evenings. But we, you know. Sorry, we're closed. You know, that's a classic. The language we use, uh, I, people can really, really think about the language. We had a thousand people a week coming into a public room in, in, a, in a hospital. And then, uh, they rubbed out the language on our, they rubbed out the words on our board outside. And instead of it saying, put your feet up, be a camarado, the hospital wrote, it's time to talk hashtag mental health awareness week. Oh. And in that week, in that week, we only counted 40 people instead of a thousand. Wow. Uh, so the, 
the language you use is very powerful. So people should think about being more human and, you know, how we speak to people. That's really interesting. And particularly, mm. I just published in my newsletter yesterday about the, how we need to sort of rethink the language that we use around AI. We call it artificial intelligence, which just makes people feel threatened. What we maybe need to do is think about augmented intelligence and how it augments our humanity, takes away some of the drudgery and how do we manage that and then and allow us to become more flourish, flourish in our humanity. So I totally that's really fascinating. Yes. Yeah, that's really fascinating. During the pandemic, we talked about social distancing. That was a disaster. We should have been talking about physical distancing. Exactly. I remember saying that as well. Yeah. Yeah. No, it's, that's really fascinating about AI. I'm going to think about that. Yeah. On a personal level, I mean, you've gone through a, a, an incredible transformative journey from those seven days of real transformation. And you've also had ups and downs of, of life through your leadership in or, charity organizations. You must have to deal with a large degree of uncertainty and face the fragility and doubt that a lot of us feel on a, on a day to day, particularly in the society and the, the way the world is at the moment. Given that you have such visibility into the broad range of social impact issues that need addressing, how, how do you actually sort of manage that uncertainty, fragility and doubt? I'm completely powered by doubt. Doubt is a huge part of my life. And I think it stops me being a dickhead mm -hmm. because if you don't have any doubts, then you're, you're Donald Trump. So I think apologies to all the Trump mm -hmm. listeners in your podcast, but you know, I think it's important to keep yourself in check a little with doubt. I also think it, it makes the, your actions better because you think around the problem and you think what can go wrong. So yeah. I think doubt is, gets a bad press. And, but I, I think doubt, I think you need doubt. I, I honestly believe in this stuff that I'm peddling. So that the principles are what really helps me. So when I'm having a tough time, I, I go help someone else. That's mm -hmm. always, always, always the best thing to do. When I'm feeling rubbish, I also allow myself to feel rubbish. I put the kettle on. I laugh about it and just, you know, stop, stop catastrophizing failure. We could all do with normalizing failure instead of mm -hmm. catastrophizing it. I play well, a lot of piano. Yeah, and I, I feel a, a real failure today because I think I might have promised to bring my piano with me and here I am and I don't have it with me. But I, I'm so sorry to let you down, but I, I, uh, I, I, I do have to say music keeps me sane. Yeah. Well, I'll, I'll hold you to that piano session. We'll do it. We often do follow up sessions with people. So next time we'll be with piano. Please, please let me do that. I had a guest called Don and I mentioned him quite a few times, Don Smith, who follows a, a German philosopher's theory on called emergence, where you don't look at success and failure. You just simply believe that you're in a process of emergence and life is emerging. What was yesterday, what is today, and what is tomorrow are going to be very different, and it's just the journey you're on. When you start to embrace that perspective, you can you can lose the word failure. And I interviewed Bracken Darrell, who's the CEO of Logitech, and he also echoed that and said in his organization at Logitech, they don't use the word failure. They use the word learning. So I think it's interesting that when you say the way you describe your, your, your life and also about dealing with and not be dealing with having doubt. The other way to think about it is, and I hear this a lot from people as well, is we have to be very comfortable with ambiguity and not, um, not be comfortable with certainty because certainty creates division. So I yes, think there's a lot in the emergence thing is, is what I was saying earlier when I was talking about the logic model, 
that was exactly that. I was talking about the emergence theory because I was talking, not that I knew about it, mm. but just there's something has always felt innately wrong with this idea of, of the logic model. It just doesn't fit life. So being in a continuum of, of ups and downs and managing, uh, finding a way to navigate that has always made sense to me. So that's great to hear that a German philosopher agrees with me. But yeah, I, the other point about Logitech, I have to say, I worry about because, I mean, of course, he's 100% right. It is learning. Mm. But for me, we often use that as a cop-out. So what we yeah. do is we say, oh, it's fine. It's learning. And that stops us actually ever taking that deeper level look at ourselves to go, I've failed uh -huh. and it's okay. Uh, what we do is learning for me is another way to go. It's fine. Let's just push it under the carpet. It's learning. <laughs> I, I didn't do anything wrong. I actually am brilliant because I've created learning. It's like, no, 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 hold on a minute. That wasn't great. Let's think about it. Let's put the kettle on. I'd rather, I w I'd rather not hide failure behind learning. I'd rather expose failure and failure be completely okay. Yeah. I, I want to use the word. I want to use the word and not have anyone judge me. Mm -hmm. But, you know, in, in, in England, it's, it's the worst thing. John Cleese always said that the worst thing to happen to an Englishman isn't death. It's embarrassment. Mm. You know, God can't be embarrassed. So as a result, people do anything they can to avoid the word failure. And that creates incredibly damaging behaviors. Yeah. I mean, I've always viewed it. Well, in, as I've got older, I've viewed failure. Both as a, as a as a learning experience, and I just see it as I, if I can actually embrace it and just go. I don't fear it. You know, I've made tons of mistakes in my life, and I am where I am today, and enjoying my life and happy in my life. But I'm a better human being because of the mistakes I've made, the failures I've encountered, and success. What is success anyway? It's only a step in the direction to something else, and you know, I, I, totally. So, anyway, so we could get into a large philosophical discussion around that. <laughs> I'm conscious of time. What are your natural gifts and talents aside from having this amazing ability to connect people and to bring people together and capture genuine humanity, which I think clearly is something you've probably taken from me. You've gone back to your father and the couch session from earlier on. Ah, oh, thanks, Matt. That's kind of you to say those things. What are my talents? I'm very fast on stairs. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Actually, I used to be. I've got some arthritis now, so I, I'm a bit slower, but I used to, I used to be very fast going downstairs. That, that was quite a talent. I, I play, I play a decent pub piano. You know, I can, I can knock out a 12 bar or two. I make a great omelette. Always handy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. That's pretty much it. Yeah. I don't know, man. I mean, I, 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 I'm not particularly gifted at looking at my own successes and what I'm great at. Maybe that's a, a, a Northern English thing. I don't know. That you, your self-reflection is that there's a certain degree of humbleness and humility there. What do people compliment you for? My hair. There's <laughs> still a, a healthy head of it. Well, yeah, I, it frustrates me hugely because people say, Matt, your, your hair is, is not gray. It's amazing. You're, you know, you're 50 and yet it's still less. And I say, yeah, but my knees don't work. My feet don't work. My ears, I'm deaf in one ear. You know, my eyes are failing. But hey, my hair is so useful. You know, it isn't. I mean, what does it do? It just sits there. I, I'd rather have working knees and other joints. Yeah. Well, I can, I can echo that sentiment as well for, with my graying hair, <laughs> but my, my 
arthritic riddled knees stop me running in this wonderful city of Austin. <laughs> but anyway, it's another story. The goal yeah. of the podcast is to engineer certain disconnections and facilitate random collision of ideas. Um, and I have to ask the question, are you open to us connecting you with other guests based on the potential value? It's what I do, brother. There you go. You've, you're you're going to be getting inbound connections coming very soon. And then in the, in the in the spirit of reciprocity, I need you to share a connection. So who do we interview next? Yeah, I've been thinking about this. Yeah, I mean, there's lots of people. I mean, obviously, you're desperate to meet John, so you should meet John Alexander. But I, I'm, I, I, I'm really interested in people who are less pale, male, and stale mm-hmm. as, as us white men. And there's a really phenomenal Muslim woman who has inspired me greatly who I just think in a just world, we'd all be working for her. And she's called Fosia Urfan. Mm. And she, she pretty much rewrote the book. Since we we're talking about philanthropy, she rewrote the book on di- diversity and inclusion in philanthropy. She, she created something called the Diversity and Equality, I think it's called Coalition. Actually, I'm not very good at remembering its name, but you know, we, we've been talking a lot on this podcast, strangely, together about the notion of charity and, and philanthropy. And, and she's, she, she's part of it. She's part of one of the biggest funders in, in, Britain, it's called Children in Need, and she's very senior there. But she has in her life really shaken up that world. But she's a supremely lovely woman and super smart and, you know, razor focused on what matters. And she's one of the people who's most inspired me recently, mostly talking about her Muslim faith, actually. And that really uh, shook me up. She pretty much rewrote the book on diversity and equality and inclusion is, is, is the leader in that in terms of philanthropy. And I just think after everything we've been saying on this call about Mm. The nature of charity and giving and kindness. And I, I think it's really important to have a voice on, on, on issues such as diversity, equality and inclusion mm. in that world. And she's just smart and human and lovely and funny, just, you know, razor focused on what matters to people. And I think she'd be great. That sounds fantastic. Um, it reminds me of a couple of women I interviewed recently. And there's an actually a follow up coming up with a woman called Sana Mustafa. Um, she's a Syria, was a Syrian refugee, displaced person. Now runs a charity based out of Washington, really focused on trying to rewrite the structure. So instead of being leadership of these organizations being run by pale, male, pale and stale individuals to be actually run by the talented individuals who are coming from the countries where they're displaced from to give them a voice and a power and direction for the strategies for these organizations that are ben- there to help the individuals who are forcibly displaced. And she's making great strides. And as actually herself, obviously, is running that organization. And the same goes for another, an Iranian woman called Nigar Tayar, who's running a similar organization. They're doing amazing work. So yeah, it's good to hear there are more and more people like that beginning to change the 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 organizational structure and nature of these organizations because it can only benefit everyone involved and bring new ideas and innovation to an innovation to the sector which is sort of sorely lacking totally yeah that's that's great i'm gonna go and check those people out thank you yeah just go to the impossible network and you'll see their interviews with them to go and search for them they're both there you're doing a you're doing a great thing mark you're doing a great thing with this network mate what a resource hopefully well, the, the more you guys connect with each other, the better. And it's funny thing about uh-huh. the John, the John. So it was this guy, Phil Adams, who is an ex colleague of mine from Leith Agency in Edinburgh, who's now making documentary films 
around reimagining democracy called All Hands On. <clears throat> and Phil mm. recommended John. So it's interesting that you know John. What's the connection? Oh, well, I guess I'm in a very similar kind of space to him in what we're doing. And he is talking to a lot of people who, who I know. And, and then he, he came up to me at a, an event. I, I'm, I've been asked to be part of this think tank, which is rather grandly reimagining Britain, the future mm. for our country. And they've asked me to be involved. And he came bounding over saying, oh, I've always wanted to meet you. And, and that was really lovely. And we had a nice chat. And I said, well, I bought your book. I think I, I, I posted a picture of myself with his book saying, this is great. And, and he said, oh, you don't know how happy this makes me. I, I've wanted to meet you for ages. So we kind of met over Twitter, me having bought his book and, 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 and enjoying it. And so, yeah, we just, I guess you travel in the same circles. Yeah, it is a fabulous book. Yeah, no, I really enjoyed I, it. He's got a very clear way of writing. Well, it's, I think it's a benefit of being trained as an advertising planner. He's got that sort of incredible sort of b b ability to simplify and to tell us a coherent yeah. story and make a very strong, cogent argument. It's definitely yeah. I mean, probably going to go down as one of the most influential books of the, of this decade. Oh, that's great to hear. I'm yeah, sure. So, yeah. Anyway, well, at some point, well, we'll be following up soon. And I'll let you know when this is ready for review before we said put it out live. And also we'll have to set up a little session so I can get my induction to um, set up a, a, a little <laughs> public living room at the, at the Y at Town Lake in Austin. Oh, that would be so exciting. I, I can't <laughs> tell you. I'd be so chuffed with that. Mm -hmm. I really would. And they'll have to come out and see it. Yeah, you will. There's a guy, they actually told me about, there's a guy in... East Austin that's created a community village. He's very wealthy ah. and he has housing and he takes people who are say clean, dry and gives them very, very, I think it's free housing, but it's all, it's all based on they all live together, the community commune together. And they recommended that I speak to him about this as well. So that might mm. be someone once I, I got to go out and try and connect with them next week. Yeah, he's apparently should, quite a, quite a character, but he might be someone that should be on your radar. You should be on his radar. Well, you know, it's really interesting. I really one of the things uh, I'm coming across, particularly with this work I'm doing on the pavements at the moment, is meeting people who just do not fit your know, misfits. And I, yeah. and I and I and I, I I use that phrase not in a pejorative sense at all. I count myself as one as well. But I just people who don't don't quite fit with conventional thinking. And mm -hmm. I think a, a different way of living, communal living, would really, really suit a lot of these people, you know. Well, one of the films that I really love is a famous f a film from the 1980s called My Dinner with Andre. I don't know if you've ever seen yes. it. Yes. With Brilliant. Wa Wallace Shawn and someone Gregory. And they're all in yeah. a restaurant. And there's a great bit in it where they talk about New York as being the ultimate prison where the prisoners don't know it's a prison, therefore they never want to leave. Wow. Increasingly, we live in these cities. There are no longer communities. They are actually prisons of, of isolation, particularly after the pandemic of loneliness, and people feel yeah, yeah. driven by it. And I think what we have to do is reimagine communities. And in that film, they talk about the Findhorn community in Scotland. And I think, yeah. you know, Findhorn was an early example of reimagining community under different different structures. And I think as the world, 
this great unraveling that's happening unless we have to re-knit the fabric of humanity and society. I think it will be under these new structures that, like you're doing and John's talking about new neighborhood yeah, structures. Yeah, and I think that's a- about... I think that's about a neighborhood level future, so more things that are more local. I mean, it suits everything yeah. from the, from a planetary sense, from a you know food production sense, from you know a, a high street sense with with the onslaught of Amazon. You know, if, if things could be more local, more neighborhood based, yeah. I think it would be the answer. It, it yeah. totally will be. It's funny. So, someone posted on LinkedIn a few weeks ago about what was the impact of of COVID, and I said it. It tore us apart, but it brought us closer. So in tearing us apart, it yeah. made us realize the value of connection. Yes. And I think that I, is really important for us to focus on and not lose sight of. I so hope that that is true, Mark. I think that there has been a little bit of clicking back a little bit, but I hope that people, when we sort of settle, realize just how damaging isolation is and how important connection is. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think so. Yeah, I, um, I hope so. The place you need to check out, the one, the guy I'm going to go and try and see next week is called Community First Village, 51 acre master plan community that provides affordable permanent housing and supportive community for men and women coming out of chronic homelessness. A development wow. of mobile loaves and fishes. This transformative residential mm-hmm. program exists to love and serve our neighbors who are who have been living on the streets while also empowering the surrounding community into a lifestyle of service. That's That sounds quite something. I'm going to just go and spend some time reading about that now. Thank you. You're introducing yeah. me to so many great things, honestly. Mm-hmm. You really well, are. Thing, I hope we, we keep in to... touch because I'm, I'm, I'm learning a lot. Oh, we will be. Don't. <laughs> yeah, I'm not going anywhere. <laughs> Good. Right. Excellent. Anyway. Great to speak to you, Amal. Thank you for the amazing work, and we'll speak soon, okay? Thanks, Mark. I've really enjoyed this, and all power to you, mate. You're doing a great thing. Take care, man. All the best. Bye-bye. Bye. Okay, that's all for now, folks. Now, here's my ask of you. Please follow this podcast on Apple or Spotify or whatever player you use. Also, please subscribe to our new Random Collisions newsletter. We really are working to build a global community of action takers, action engines of people that really care about the problems that need solving. Thank you very much, and see you next time.